This is The Storied Outdoors, a podcast somewhere between Lewis and Tolkien and Lewis and Clark, finding clarity in the stories we tell and the adventures that shape us. This essay is entitled There and Back Again, Chapter 80, written by Dr. Brian Gill and read for you by Brad Hill. The question is not what you look at, but what you see. Henry David Thoreau. The small fire was burning brightly, and shadows danced along the walls of a small room in a smeal called Bag End at the end of Bagshot Row in Hobbiton. Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin were all gathered in a small room to say their goodbyes to the aging Bilbo Baggins. When all the gifts had been given out, Bilbo turned to Frodo and asked, What's become of my old ring, Frodo? The one you took away. Frodo said, I have lost it, Bilbo, dear. I got rid of it, you know. What a pity, Bilbo replied. I should have liked to see it again. After saying this, Bilbo recalled the stories of Frodo and Sam and all the unbelievable adventures they had shared. Adventures Sam and Frodo had hoped one day would be written down in Bilbo's memoir with plain red leather covers entitled There and Back Again. After regretting taking the straight road back from his own trip, he conceded it was much more comfortable to sit by the fire and hear about the adventures instead. In that brief moment of reflection, Bilbo wished to relive just one more adventure, one more journey. But instead, he nestled his head into his chest and slept soundly with a smile on his face. As the evening grew darker, Sam whispered to Frodo, I don't think, Mr. Frodo, that he's done much writing while we've been away. He won't ever write our story now. I often think about this scene. It is a powerful conversation that is worthy of reflection. Why would the aged Bilbo wish to see the ring again? Was it because he wanted to feel the power of the ring in his hands? Was he longing to feel young again, and the ring had the power to reverse the sands of time? Or was it something else? Perhaps it is possible that the deeper sentiment was that he wanted to remember the adventures he shared with that trinket in his possession. Would holding the ring once more help his fading mind remember the days of old and feel the connection to better days gone by once again? Perhaps that was the reason he started writing his memoir. He wanted to relive the stories he told, the adventures that shaped him. Perhaps it wasn't 
age that caused him to sleep so often, but the adventures he relived in his dreams and ones he longed to return to in his mind. And as for Sam, we could all feel the sadness of his dream of someone else writing stories about him and Frodo, being crushed by Bilbo's fleeting mind and weak hands. How would people remember their epic journey? What if their stories had been lost in the cold winds of that frosty October night? What a pity, indeed. Reflection enables us to look back at a situation, or an image, and seeing something beyond the thing itself. The simple acts of remembering and contemplation help give meaning to an event. Sometimes these memories are commemorated by a photograph, a written memoir, a trinket, or even a trophy. But without a story or a memory, photos, memoirs, and trinkets are just bits of matter arranged in a way that is pleasing to the eye. For instance, an elderly widow gazing at a faded photograph of her handsome soldier coming home from the war carries more meaning than a stranger looking at the same photograph. The photo is the same, but the meaning behind the image is different when a memory is attached to it. The memory, the story, is what makes the image so powerful that it evokes emotion. The same is true for a young man when he becomes, say, an Eagle Scout. The patch and pin they receive at an award ceremony represents much more than the embroidered cloth and stamped metal. They represent years of discipline, honor, integrity, preparedness, and service required to achieve the highest honor associated with the Boy Scouts of America. A trophy is more than a medal and marble. It represents the toil and training that went into an event or season and the victory that merited an award. A cross is only the intersection of two lines without meaning behind it. To a builder, a cross is a sufficient way to support a structure. To those hurt by people connected to the church, it is associated with anxiety and pain. But to many, a cross is the sign of hope It offers forgiveness of sin through the man Jesus who died upon the similar structure. The image is the same, but what the symbol represents varies greatly depending upon our perception and experiences associated with that symbol. The deer mounted in my house are not merely decorations, just ask my wife. They serve as reminders of my adventures. When I look at the trophies mounted on my wall, I see the story behind each one. I look at the 11-point whitetail and remember the frosty morning when Dad dropped me off in the middle of a peanut field. He told me, you'll never see anything in that field. As the morning broke, I saw the bright reflection of the rising sun on a mass of antlers in the distance. From my position on the ground, I adjusted my bipod, aimed, and shot him at 295 yards. He fell instantly. After admiring his beauty for a moment, I drug him to the edge of the field to play a trick on Dad. When the hunt was over, 
and we reconvened, I told Dad that I had shot one, and over there in the thicket was the last place I'd seen him. As we walked up on the biggest deer I'd ever taken lying there, with my hunting jacket draped over his antlers, my dad's jaw dropped and he said, See, I told you you wouldn't see anything in that field. (laughs) We laughed and drove that deer around town in the back of our truck for the next three hours. The 12-pound bass that I mentioned in a previous essay is mounted right beside this deer. When I see that trophy... I don't simply see a fish. I see the story behind my dad's best day of fishing ever. There's also a mounted turkey with a 12-inch beard and an inch and a quarter spurs that dad killed with a buddy who passed away shortly after that hunt. There's a big nine-pointer that dad killed when I was a kid. Although it was the biggest deer of my dad's life, my parents couldn't afford uh, to mount the deer at the time. So once I became an adult and had a little extra cash, I had it mounted for him as a Christmas gift. Here's another bass, a few turkey fans, and a couple more deer adorning the walls of my basement like a library of stories that take me there and back again each time I look at them. Sometimes I just stand and stare with a smile on my face as I gaze at the walls adorned with trophies of these stories. 100 years ago, in 1921, an advertising executive, Fred Bernard, coined the phrase, One look is worth a thousand words. This is where the phrase, A picture is worth a thousand words, originated. As a writer and photographer, I am torn on the accuracy of this statement. Nevertheless, photographs are like the mounted animals in my basement. Each one carries meaning beyond the paper on which it is printed. Photos have the power to transport us back to a different place and time and relive the moment captured in the frozen image. Photography has been a hobby of mine for over a quarter century. And honestly, if I didn't like the taste of venison or wild turkey so much, I might consider hanging up my rifle and shotgun in exchange for my camera. However, I don't foresee losing my love for the taste of wild game cooked to perfection sitting beside a plate of mashed potatoes and gravy anytime soon. There was one time, however, when I chose to hunt with my camera instead of my rifle. And it's a story I will never forget. It was the early 90s. I was 13 years old. I proudly walked into the drugstore and carefully placed a black and gray canister on the counter. Inside that black and gray canister was a yellow and black roll of Kodak film containing 24 images that served as proof of a successful weekend spent capturing wildlife on my first roll of film shot on my first real camera, a Pentax K1000. The Pentax K-1000 originated in Japan in 1976 and was a fully manual camera that depended upon the photographer for everything. The only electrical aspect of this camera was the light meter that you monitor through the viewfinder and manipulated by adjusting the aperture and shutter speed settings with a knob on the top of the camera body. Mr. Sled, my middle school technology teacher, introduced me to this camera. Mr. Sled was a middle school teacher and a part-time professional photographer. 
and was the one who introduced me to photography. I credit everything I know about photography to Mr. Sled. He taught me about the relationship between shutter speed and aperture. He taught me what an f-stop means. He explained the importance of a focal length and how long lenses would work better for wildlife and how shorter lenses work better for portraits. Use a big aperture to make a, a blurry background. Use a small aperture to make more of a photo in focus. Use a slower shutter speed to create a smooth effect on a waterfall. And use a long exposure to capture stars in the night sky. At the time, I learned how to develop my own film in a darkroom and how to burn an image to adjust the exposure. The small details that Mr. Sled taught me about photographing nature still stick with me to this day. Over the years, Mr. Sled poured into my life and mentored me as a young photographer. So, naturally, when Mr. Sled told me to get a Pentax K1000, I begged and pleaded for my parents to get me a Pentax K1000. I remember it vividly. There was one box left under the Christmas tree with my name on it. I tore into the box to reveal a gray camera bag full of used Pentax camera equipment. I was ecstatic. To make it even better, in my stocking was a roll of film that I could not wait to use. For those of you who are not familiar with the world of photography that existed before the digital age, there was a time when photographers had to shoot photos on rolls of film limited to 12, 24, and 36 exposures, and wait 10 days while the film was sent off to the developer to see what they captured. Unlike photography today, back then I would never have taken hundreds of photos of one subject only to select the very best one or two. And I would have never dreamed of being able to instantly see the image on a touchscreen monitor on my camera and send it wirelessly to my smartphone. The days of film required the photographer to be much more selective in pressing the shutter release button. So. As you can imagine, I didn't want to waste this precious roll of film on just any subject, such as my pets or my sister. I knew exactly where I was going to use this 24-count roll. For in the next few days, my family and I were going to visit my cousins in Pineapple, Alabama. My cousin owned a lot of land, and uh, we planned to hunt for the weekend. However, my plan was to take my camera and shoot wildlife through my lens instead. With my new-to-me camera body and a 70-200mm lens my cousin let me borrow, I was on a mission to explore the 40 acres behind their house and fill my 24-exposure roll of film with epic wildlife photography. I wore camouflage and I walked in a sage field peppered with large cedar trees and found a place to sit in the shadows between the fence line and the big pond for the afternoon. Along with my camera bag, I carried a small notebook with me so I could record what subjects I'd photographed, as well as the technical information associated with the exposure of each photo. This was a tip Mr. Sled recommended so I could learn how to adjust the lighting differently if a photo didn't turn out the way I wanted. Nowadays, I just have to look at my settings in the field and adjust accordingly. However, I still carry a notebook with me. 
Before long, a northern flicker, better known as Alabama's state bird, the yellowhammer, lit in the tree next to me. I slowly raised my camera, adjusted the knob so the lighting was just right. I twisted the body of the lens to focus and pressed the shutter button. Oh, I got it. Not long afterwards, a small family of deer walked out and stood as if they were posing for me. They stood about 20 yards away with a golden sage surrounding them framed by bushy cedar trees on either side and the pond behind them. I adjusted the settings and shot the photo. I got it. All of a sudden, a beautiful red fox poked her head up over the dam on the south end of the pond. The afternoon light hit her face perfectly, and I captured it as well. I'd never seen a fox before, and it was a miracle that I was able to capture this one before it ran away. That particular shot of the red fox was the one photo I was especially excited to see developed. It was going to be perfect. One after another, various woodland creatures revealed themselves, and I took their picture. To top it all off, as the day came to an end, I was blessed with a beautiful winter sunset. I captured that as well. I couldn't have been more pleased with my afternoon of wildlife photography. This was going to be a phenomenal role of film, and I couldn't wait to get it developed. Those ten days between dropping the film off at the drugstore and receiving the package of developed photos seemed like an eternity. My mom drove me to pick up the photos, and I, I'm pretty sure I jumped out of the car before she had come to a complete stop. I couldn't wait to rip into the package and see what wonderful photos I had taken. Or so I thought. The clerk handed me the package with my name on it, and I tore in. My heart sank when I peered in to see the black and gray film canister inside. I looked up at the clerk with a sad eyes and asked, uh, Where are the pictures? He took the package looked at the note on the side and said, says here there weren't any photos on the roll. There had to be some mistake. What happened? They messed up my roll in those 10 days between the drop-off and the developing of my film. I had documentation. I'd taken notes. The lighting was perfect. The subjects were interesting. Somebody ruined my roll of film and there was nothing I could do about it except for one thing, that is. I could take it to Mr. Sled and get a second opinion. If there was anyone on this earth who could save this role and reveal the photos I had taken, it was Mr. Sled. So, once school resumed from Christmas break, I took the role to Mr. Sled to see if he could fix this tragedy. He agreed to try and develop the film in his own darkroom. I waited with bated breath until the results were in. He called me into his office and sat me down. He handed me his own Pentax K1000 and said, Show me how you loaded the film into your camera. Confused, I took the camera body and showed him. I unlocked the body by lifting the film rewind knob. I opened the back. 
I placed the film canister into the slot and pulled the film out just enough to sit into the teeth that would grab the film to advance each frame. Then I closed the back. When I handed the camera body back to him, a grin fell over his face. It was not a grin that had ill intent, nor one that suggested I had done something funny, but one that implied, Brian, you're about to learn a valuable lesson here. He opened the camera back and went on to explain that I had not loaded the film properly. There was an extra step in feeding the film through a small slot on the side that I had neglected to do. He said there was nothing I could do to save those photos because there were no photos on that roll, Gil. I was devastated. There was nothing to show for my perfect wildlife photography afternoon. No deer, no yellowhammer, and no curious red fox. Nothing. It was all gone as if it had never happened. I learned a valuable lesson about knowing my equipment and being prepared that day. Although times have changed and I shoot only digital photos on a memory card that holds more photos than I'll probably ever take in a year, I have never forgotten that hard lesson I learned with my first roll of film. I still lament those photos that I missed on that afternoon. Sure, I've taken many pictures of birds, deer, and woodland creatures and sunsets since, but no red foxes. I'll never get those pictures back. And while I don't have to worry about film anymore, I make certain I have enough memory cards and extra batteries to last the entire trip. I tend to carry my camera with me wherever I go outdoors. Whether I'm on a hike, a fishing trip, a kayak ride, or just birding with my family, it's usually by my side. It's a little cumbersome at times, but I've learned that you really never know what you might see. And I never want to say, man, if I only had my camera. Don't get me wrong, there have been times when I didn't have my camera and an opportunity presented itself, and I missed it. Roman philosopher Seneca defines luck as when preparedness and opportunity meet. In those instances, when I wish I'd had my camera, I guess you could say I was unlucky because I was unprepared. I've tried to be more prepared as an adult, just in case. To this point, having my camera ready has paid off quite well. While I've only sold a handful of photographs, I've amassed a nice collection of eagles, white-tailed deer, songbirds, waterfowl, and waterfalls over the years by simply having my camera ready when something interesting presented itself. Photography is similar to journaling for me. When I journal, I write about events that are important and am able to reflect on them over time. When I take a photo, I'm freezing time and I'm able to relive the frozen moment at a later date. Photos help me to remember the times that I thought were special enough to capture with the lens of my camera. And there have been times when I've looked back at a photo and sworn that I could smell the air on that day or feel the coolness of the breeze on my bare fingertips as I waited to snap the perfect shot of an unsuspecting whitetail on a chilly, wintry morning. When I look at some of the photos I've taken, 
I'm instantly transported back to the moment when I captured that image. Photos are the trophies of my memories. Recently, I've tried to instill the love of photography in my children. I have a six-year-old son who is analytical and calculated, and a five-year-old daughter who is spunky and free-spirited. Both have shown an interest in photography. This past spring, when the songbirds were active and plentiful, my daughter and I were sitting together on the deck in my backyard. She climbed into my lap and said, Daddy, I want to take pictures of these birds. I jumped out of my seat so fast and ran to get my camera, for I didn't want this opportunity to pass. We spent the next 30 minutes or so snapping photos of cardinals, blue jays, wrens, house finches, and a curious chipmunk that played peekaboo with us from the nearby woodpile. She loved the act of taking pictures, but I'm pretty sure she enjoyed looking back at the photos she had taken even more, especially when we pretended like they were saying funny things. That was the first time she had expressed interest in photography, and since that day we've regularly enjoyed nature walks and bird-watching trips on trails or by kayak together. My son is just as interested in photography, but he is so independent that he wants to take his own camera and take pictures all by himself, just like Daddy. Birding with my children has brought me so much joy. Although we're very new to this type of quality time together, we've already had quite the experiences, one of which I wrote about in Season 2 essay entitled A Beautiful Interruption, when we were able to observe the loons and eagles last fall on Lake Gunnersville. However, birding with my daughter is quite different than birding with my son. When my son sees a bird, he takes his time, analyzes the situation possibly looks through his binoculars, jots down a note on his dinosaur notepad, and makes an educated guess as to what he thinks the species could be. He's basically an 80-year-old man trapped in a 6-year-old body. My daughter, on the other hand, sees a bird flying and yells at the top of her lungs, Daddy, it's an eagle! Or, Daddy, look, a heron! Or my favorite time is when she truly stumped, and she looks at me with a furrowed brow and cocks her head to the side and says, was that an eagle or was that a crow? Most of the time, it was neither, but I love her curiosity. This past May, while spending the time at the lake, my brother-in-law, J.D., and I took our kids on a birding walk while our wives went jogging. My son had his small point-and-shoot camera, and I had my brand new Canon 90D digital SLR with a 100 to 400 millimeter zoom telephoto lens. I had read the owner's manual and all the online reviews before purchasing this camera and was certain I knew how to operate this shiny new toy of mine. And I was eager to carry it on this inaugural birding walk on which we were about to embark. Charles took photos of anything and everything he thought was interesting, from dandelions to butterflies to failed attempts of a flying bluebird, and I would take photos of whatever my daughter wanted me to. We saw bluebirds, and a morning dove, a flock of finches, and a murder of crows, a term I only recently learned. However, now that I know that a murder is the correct term to describe a group of crows, I try to use it as often as possible. Alas, the morning chill was fleeting and the excitement of birding was wearing off. 
For the kids, it was time to swim. They ran along ahead, and J.D. corralled them into the house so they could put on their swimsuits. A bright orange-colored bird caught my eye, so I decided to stay behind and explore the small field near the lake house to investigate. I'd never seen this bird before and was curious enough to see if I could get a better look at it. I snuck between the pine trees, trying my best to hide in the shadows, and saw the flash again. There was a bright red flash with it this time. I knew it didn't look like a cardinal or a pine warbler, and it definitely wasn't a robin, but I couldn't seem to identify it. I eased my way through the pines to get a better vantage point. Finally, I got a clear shot and zoomed in on the monitor. It was a summer tanger, a truly magnificent bird. The orange one was an adolescent male, and the bright red one was an adult male. These may be common in other parts of the country, but this was my very first time seeing them. It was a special sight and an absolutely beautiful bird. However, it wasn't as special as the next visitor I encountered. As I stood there in the middle of the pine-laden field, another orange image caught my eye. This time, it was on the ground. As I slowly turned to get a better view, a bright red fox with dark black feet stepped out of the woods and into the clearing. I raised my camera, zoomed in, and started shooting. He didn't see me at first, and I tracked him for a couple of minutes. He stepped into a single ray of sunshine, and the light hit his eyes perfectly. I snapped a dozen or more photos, hoping that everything I was capturing with my camera was as perfect as what I was seeing in real life. There was no time to review the photos to see if the lighting was right or if it was under or overexposed. I couldn't ask the curious fox to stand still until I adjusted the settings or focus before he fled from me. I had to know what I was doing and trust that everything I knew about my brand new camera was working properly. Renowned landscape photographer Ansel Adams once said, You don't make a photograph just with a camera. You bring to the act of photography all the pictures you have seen, the books you have read and the music you have heard, the people you have loved. In that moment, everything I'd learned from Mr. Sled, every book I'd read about photography, every outdoor photography magazine article I'd read, everything I knew about a fox's behavior in the wild, everything I knew about the lighting and metering and wind direction, it all flooded my mind in that instant. And before I knew it, I'd snapped dozens of photos and the moment had passed. The fox fled as quickly as he had appeared, and the moment of truth was at hand. Had I captured this beautiful creature, or had I done something wrong the same way I had years ago when I had not loaded the film correctly into my Pentax K-1000? It had been 25 years since that tragic photographic mishap in the woods of Pineapple, Alabama. And I had not had another opportunity to photograph a red fox in all those years since. Until now. 
Looking at the monitor on my camera, I scroll through the dozens of bird photos and past the summer tanger shots until I reached the fox photos. The first ones were acceptable, but none were able to truly capture the beauty of that animal. I scrolled through more of the photos and finally got to the shots where he'd stepped into the ray of sunlight beside the large pine tree. That was the shot I wanted most. That was the shot that was etched into my mind. The first one was blurry as the lens focused on his body rather than his eyes. The second one was underexposed, but the third one, the third shot of the beautiful red fox that had stepped into the single ray of light was simply gorgeous. It was absolutely perfect. It looked like a painting of sorts. I don't say that to brag in any way, but I say it as humbly as possible with gratefulness that I was able to truly capture that animal's beauty in a photograph. To this date, and with quite possibly a million photos that preceded it, that photo of that red fox is my favorite picture I've ever taken of a wild animal. Was it luck? Perhaps. But maybe, in that instance, I just happened to be prepared when the opportunity presented itself. Once I returned to the lake house, I showed the kids the picture of the fox, and they were in awe, for about five seconds at least. However, my son, as he was walking away, stopped and turned back to me and said, I really wish I'd seen that fox with you, Daddy. I would love to take a picture of a fox like that one day. Maybe, maybe we'll see him again, buddy, I told him. I sure hope so. And I hope I'll have my camera with me. Me too, buddy. Me too. For my son and me, while we see that photo differently, it contains a story for both of us. When I look at that photo, I see the bitterness of missing an opportunity as a child coupled with the sweetness of finally capturing a much better version 25 years later. When my son sees that photo, he too sees a missed opportunity, but I expect if he continues to be interested in wildlife photography, he will taste the sweetness of taking that one shot that leaves him speechless. Will he continue to have the love for nature and photography when he gets older? Who knows? But for that moment, I was able to capture his imagination, and he could envision himself taking a photo of a fox like that one day through the lens of his own camera. And I will cultivate that interest in him as long as he'll let me in the same way Mr. Sled did with me, so he too can relive stories of the outdoors through photos. I, unlike Bilbo Baggins, am able to relive the stories of adventures in my life through metaphorical trinkets, whether it be a mounted deer on my basement wall or a digital photo of a fox. However, where Bilbo and I are similar is our desire to write down these adventures so future generations might enjoy their retelling around a cozy fire one day. And much like Sam, who begged the question, I too asked myself, who will write the stories of our adventures. 
Later on in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, well after bidding Bilbo farewell, Frodo realized that he, too, must leave Sam. The following is an excerpt from The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. In the next day or two, Frodo went through his papers and his writings with Sam, and he handed over his keys. There was a big book with plain red leather covers. Its tall pages were now almost filled. At the beginning, there were many leaves covered with Bilbo's thin, wandering hand. But most of it was written in Frodo's firm, flowing script. It was divided into chapters. But chapter 80 was unfinished. And after that were some blank leaves. Why, you have nearly finished it, Mr. Frodo, Sam exclaimed. Well, you have kept at it, I must say. I have quite finished it, Sam, said Frodo. The last pages are for you. For Brad and myself, recording these stories in the form of essays serve as a type of memoir, a memoir that our children will one day be able to have and to listen to. Telling our stories to our children was one of the original goals of starting the storied outdoors. And what a treasure that will be for them one day. But another goal was that these stories would inspire our listeners, like Sam in Chapter 80 of There and Back Again, to write your own stories and share your own adventures in the storied outdoors. Listen, we know there's lots out there for you guys to be listening to. Um, there's so many choices when it comes to podcasts and, and so many topics and things for you guys uh, to be engaged in. And so we are so thankful that you take time to listen and uh, join us for our adventures and conversations and meeting of new friends. Um, if you have enjoyed this, you know, we ultimately we hope you share this with your friends. Uh, we share these stories in uh conversations. We hope they encourage you. We hope they encourage your friends. Uh, also, if you want to, man, we would be so blessed if you would take time to perhaps leave us a review um, or a rating on your podcast platform. And if you have any questions or any comments you'd like to send us, you can send those to thestoriedoutdoors at gmail.com. We would so love to hear from you. So send us a message leave us a review and share this with uh, share this with your friends and we hope these stories again encourage you to write your own stories and share your own adventures in the storied outdoors